For centuries, humans have been growing alongside our botanical brethren. Our histories have mixed and mingled to bring us modern medical marvels, faded folklore, and everything in between. Of course, in order to understand the plant, we have to start with its roots. I'm M. Governor Gaddis, and this is Rooted. Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of Rooted. This week, we're taking a closer look at one of the towering giants of the forest, a tree with several tall tales to tell, Scott's Pine. First things first, Scott's Pine, otherwise known as Pinus sylvestris, is a large evergreen pine tree. It gets up to 115 feet tall, 35 meters for our non-US pals, with trunks about three feet or one meter wide. It's part of the pine family, with relatives such as cedar, hemlock, and spruce. They have an average lifespan of 150 to 300 years, so they're basically the grandpas of the forest. I mean, Pinus sylvestris? Have you ever heard a more grandpa-esque botanical name? So sweet. One thing you should know about me is that I get really excited about trees and their records, so you know I've got to share some with you. The tallest Scots pine lives in Estonia. It's 215 years old and is a staggering 153 feet, or roughly 47 meters, and was measured in 2015. The oldest Scots pine lives in Finland and is roughly 780 years old this year, but it's hard to estimate its true age due to the commonality of inner trunk rot in old growth pine species. This one was measured in 2007 by the Finnish Forest Institute, but there is some debate here. Like I mentioned, trunk rot can make it really hard to tell how truly old these trees are. If just counting rings, the oldest tree is technically in Poland, clocking in at 623 years old when sampled in 2021, making it about 625 years old this year. However, the researchers in Finland noted that the trunk of our 780-year-old pal had significant fire damage that lined up with a large forest fire that happened 727 years ago. And, based on the rest of the rings and other growth patterns in history of the forest, concluded that the tree has to be at least 780 years old. If that doesn't make your heart burst with pride, I just don't know what to tell you. Anyway... These gentle giant grandpas are native to a wide variety of regions, spanning from the dreary depths of the modern-day UK to the sunny skies of the Mediterranean. With such a wide spread, you might be surprised that Scotland chose it as its national tree, but it's worth noting that there's a very specific subspecies known as the Caledonian pine that is only found in the Caledonian forest region of Scotland. It thrives in the very specific temperatures and soil in this region, and is unable to grow virtually anywhere else, making it super unique to Scotland. As a general rule, Scots pines prefer peaty bogs or the sandy, rocky soil, but thrive in drier conditions, where they're less often outcompeted. Because they aren't too picky, they're a great early addition to the forest. They are often some of the first trees to start coming back after a forest fire, 
which not only allows them to get in early and grow so large, but also makes them a vital addition as they supply protection and shade for the rest of the plants who will soon be growing in. They aren't too sensitive to changes in precipitation or nutrient density, and because they're relatively fast growing, they weren't impacted much when logging became more common. They are, however, very tasty. So the biggest challenge they face early on is actually grazing livestock who not only compact the earth to prevent seedlings from breaking through, but also may snack on their tender little heads, stopping them in their tracks and preventing them from becoming the towering tree giant of their dreams. They have an orange-red flaky bark that changes to a lightish brown as it ages, but sometimes it stays orangey towards the top. Their needles are kind of short, very deep blue-green, and actually grow in groups of two that then kind of clump together to form the boughs we're used to. In the first year of growth, Scots pines actually only grow one needle, and those needles have serrated edges, likely to try and discourage sheep from snacking on them. As they grow, they start coupling up, with some pines growing up to four needles in areas that need to be particularly pointy. Also of note, these trees can grow quite differently depending on the region they're in. This is most clearly seen in needle growth, with trees in warmer climates putting on new needles every two to four years, and those in subarctic regions taking up to nine. The trunk tends to get quite tall before the branches and needles start to come out, which makes this an easier pine to identify. Their pine cones start as a bright red color once they're pollinated, but fade to a yellow and later brownish color as they age and the seeds inside mature. They are round and more densely packed, with a shape that made them particularly useful to followers of Dionysus, who used them to make what historians have described as phallic staffs, with the pine cone placed at the tip to symbolize prosperity and fertility. But Scots pines aren't just pillars of the forest and phallic accessories. They also play a large role in history and folklore. In Siberia, the Buryats hold Scots pines forests in high regard, Known as the Shaman Forest, these sacred places must be entered in silence so as not to disturb the spirits who may reside there. Speaking of spirits and trees, have you ever heard of the fairy tree in Ireland? The story goes that just outside of Aberfoyle, on a hill overlooking the city, there is a tree that contains the spirit of a man who was taken by fairies due to his imposing curiosity. The man in question is none other than Robert Kirk, a 1690 reverend who was one of the only members of the church at the time who was still willing to accept local pagan traditions, believing that these traditions could still exist in harmony with Christianity, provided that fairies were real and therefore a part of God's creation. But here's the thing. Fairies really don't like it when humans go poking around near the entrance to their realm, which is exactly what Robert was doing. He went so far as to regularly go to Dune Hill, the hill he believed the fairies lived under, and just lay there for hours, with his ear pressed to the ground listening for their movements. This started as a thing he would do like every other week in alignment with the moon cycle, as it was believed that's when the veil between the realms was the thinnest. But before long, Robert was doing this like every day, all the time. He had a job, a pregnant wife, a Bible to finish translating, and like a million other responsibilities, but instead, this man chose to just sit with his ear to the ground 
ready to jot down even the tiniest noise. One day, Robert actually fell asleep on the hill, waiting to hear the fairies. And that's when they saw their chance. Tired of his meddling, the fairies took his soul and trapped it in the nearby tree, freeing themselves of his imposing listening sessions forever. That's one way to do it, I guess. But the tale doesn't end there. Remember how I told you his wife was pregnant? Well, as luck would have it, Robert's ghost appeared to his cousin Graham and told him that he was, in fact, trapped in the tree and that the only way to free him would be at his child's baptism. He explained that he would be able to appear once again at the baptism, and upon seeing him, his cousin was to throw a steel knife at him in order to free his spirit. Easy enough, right? Like, what baby shower is complete without hurtling knives at ghosts, right? Wrong. It turns out that Robert did show up to his kid's baptism, but his cousin Graham, unaccustomed to seeing creepy-ass ghosts, was so scared he forgot to throw the knife at Robert. By the time his cousin had overcome his fright, Robert's spirit was gone and was never seen again. Way to go, Graham. The tree on Dunes Hill is still standing. And to this day, people write their wishes down on white pieces of cloth or silk, hoping that the fairies will someday grant them. But Scott's Pines aren't just places spirits live. They were also used in medicine, tradition, and everyday life. As far as medicine goes, these guys are used for all sorts of things. The needles are a great source of vitamin C, which is especially important in the winter months when other sources of vitamin C are limited and illnesses become more common. Pine needle tea was and is often served to relieve congestion, cough, and other cold symptoms. The sap has antiseptic and disinfectant properties, so it was often added into teas and other foods to help to treat a variety of illnesses. As far as tradition goes, the Scots pine is used in a lot of different cultures, but plays a very significant role in Nordic and Celtic paganism. For starters, we have the winter solstice. During the winter solstice, traditional Yule logs are Scotch pine. In fact, Scotch pine is one of the twins of the winter solstice, along with yew. Yew, in this case, symbolizes death, while the Scotch pine represents rebirth, cleansing, and the prosperity of spring and summer. It's because of this symbolism that couples in Scotland used to use Scotch pine to make candles that they would burn during their wedding reception as a way to represent the new chapter of their lives and to bring prosperity and fertility to their union. Another fun tradition? In the winter, it was common for people to decorate these trees with bits and bobs to bring life and color in, and to celebrate the new life soon to come. Sound familiar? That's right, Scots Pine are the original Christmas trees, and they're actually still a pretty popular choice today, although others have surpassed them for the number one spot. Due to their height, commonality, resin content, and relative strength, Scotch pines were and are a common choice for use in both boats and houses. The resin content in the wood helps to prevent rot due to its antiseptic properties, which is obviously important when you're talking about a house or a boat, which are going to be subjected to all kinds of different weather. Interestingly, people used to not want to harvest their Scots pine trees for building while the moon was waning, as it was believed to have the lowest concentration of sap. As it turns out, there's some truth to that. 
as botanists have found a correlation between the moon phases and sap content of trees. Scotch pines are also used as pulpwood, which is ultimately what makes paper products like paper and tissue. And the sap is a key component in turpentine, that awful smelling stuff used to clean paintbrushes, thin paint, and it was used as an antiseptic from the age of discovery until the end of the Civil War, when we finally realized that it's also a poison and, you know, casually shouldn't be ingested. The resin was also used to seal beer barrels before they were shipped to help strengthen them and prevent any leaking or bacterial contamination. As if that weren't enough, we also used Scott's pine to make fabric known as vegetable flannel, which was said to be lightweight and breathable, as well as hypoallergenic. It was used in undergarments and in blankets due to that, and it apparently harbored less pests. But there was yet another controversy here. See, it was later revealed that vegetable flannel was mostly made of cotton and linen, and people were just adding in wood pulp to add some roughness and a piney scent. Due to the lies and heartbreak of vegetable flannel lovers, the stuff quickly fell out of fashion around 1865. One way you might run into Scott's Pine? Telephone poles. Well, it's not as common now, especially in the United States where we use more red cedar and Douglas fir because they're easier for us to find and use. Before this episode, I had never known how truly involved the process for making wood poles was. But now that I know it, you have to know it with me. After all, why have a podcast if you can't force people on the internet to learn weird things with you? Okay, for starters, the trees have to be selected while they're still growing. And there are a lot of criteria they have to meet. They have to be tall, straight, without flaws, and very healthy. Only like 7% of all trees in any given forest are deemed good enough to be telephone poles. Who knew it was so selective? From there, the trees are eventually cut down, where they're taken to a facility that further checks them for flaws. Once deemed suitable, they're then stripped of their bark, checked again, then run through a vigorous testing and inspection process where people make sure they're strong and free of pests. Next, they're chemically treated externally to prevent fungus and other pests from eating the wood, then soaked for hours to be treated internally. Like, imagine how big those tanks have to be to soak a telephone pole. Crazy stuff. Then, the pole is given a little birthmark so that people who work on them can identify the material used, age, and other details of the tree. After this stage, the poles are eventually shipped to their new homes, installed, and will serve their purpose for roughly 70 years before needing to be replaced. To date, there are roughly 150 million wooden telephone poles in the U.S. alone. Other than building, we also have uses for Scott's Pine in medicine and in science. In medicine, we're currently studying the extracts of Scott's Pine bark, specifically using methanol and acetone, to treat the parasite Cryptosupportium parvum, which causes extreme gastrointestinal distress and sounds like a spell from Harry Potter. Most cases of infection are due to ingesting this nasty guy from water or food, and unfortunately, the treatments we currently have aren't really all that effective. Luckily, 
Researchers from a 2021 study titled Extracts of the Pine Bark Pinus Silvestris Inhibit Cryptosupportium Parvum Growth in Cell Culture was funded by the Research Council of Norway and the Binair Program, as well as the Norwegian University of Life Sciences and the Norwegian Research Council. This study started looking into the pine bark extract as a solution because it contains very concentrated tannins that inhibit the growth of C. parvum. While more research is certainly needed, this is a promising start. But our use cases don't stop there. Scott's pine also plays a vital role in our understanding of dendrochronology, the study of how old trees are. Remember the controversy from earlier about the world's oldest Scott's pine? Yeah, it turns out we have a lot to learn about how to properly age trees, as counting rings is only really effective as long as the inside of the tree isn't rotted out. So, because Scott's pines are a gramp of the forest and prone to inner trunk rot, they have forced scientists to continually test new methods of aging trees, which now include things like radiocarbon dating, using pollen records, and lichenometry. For a little more detail on those last two, we can use the pollen record, or the pollen that's trapped in sediment, to track when a tree would have existed in an area. So, if we have a record of the fact that pollen from the Scots pine was in an area where rings rotted out, we can still assume it was there for that time period, which can give us a little more data to fill in the literal blank. Lichenometry is typically used to tell us the age of exposed rocks by looking at the growth of lichen, but it can also help to cross-reference tree age in the same way we use the pollen record. And the science doesn't stop there. Scott's pine is also a great way for us to study the long-term effects of radiation exposure, as a significant number of them were exposed to the radiation following Chernobyl, which continues to impact them to this day. Scott's pines are extremely sensitive to radiation exposure, and due to its haploid endosperm, the haplotype and recessive mutations are passed on, making it easier to see the long-term impacts on not just established trees, but also their offspring meaning we can more directly see the impact that radiation exposure has on future generations, too. Do you live in an area where Scots pines are common? If you do, please give them a big hug from me, and thank them for being our forest grandpas for so long. It's a tough job, and they're doing it so well. Before we wrap up this episode, I just wanted to thank you guys so much for your continued support of the show. We are already at 500 downloads, which... I never even dared to dream about, let alone reach so quickly. And thank you for being so receptive of our first ever ad. It really helps me to be able to keep producing the show and hopefully be able to make more content for you soon. As a fun fact for listening this far, I actually used to write a lot of ads, but I've never gotten to read any of them. It's wild on this side of the mic, but I'm just so honored to have a chance to do it. You are all so generous and so lovely, and I can't wait to come back next week with new facts and fables for you. If you liked the show, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at rooted.pod. We're on YouTube at Rooted.Podcast, and check out our website, RootedPod.com, for transcripts, updates, and so much more. Thanks for being here. 
And until next time, be kind to yourselves, be kind to the earth, and just like a plant, drink your water.